Welcome to the very first episode of The Sewing Circle, a women's history podcast. The focus of this show won't just be great woman history or the most despicable people the world has ever produced. While we will cover some of these figures, we'll spend more time exploring the women in between and the nuances we can find there. My name is Peyton Alexander, and I'd like to thank you for being here. I'm so excited to start this journey with you. The perfect figure for this inaugural episode of The Sewing Circle is a woman who relished in subverting expectations, who actively cultivated mystique and delighted in rumor and innuendo. Today's subject is the anti-Nazi actress, singer, and queer icon, Marlena Dietrich. and a top hat, Amy Jolly saunters into a packed nightclub. The heat of the evening can be felt through the screen, and as I sit on my couch, I'm wishing for one of my own of a multitude of paper fans in the partygoers' hands, waving off the steamy evening. Everyone is immediately captivated by Amy, but her attention is drawn to a particular table occupied by two men and two women. With all eyes on her, Amy slowly approaches one of the women and fondles a flower in her hair. May I have this? Of course. She leans in and kisses her, and the club erupts into applause and whoops of joy. As Amy sashays away triumphantly with the flower, she flicks her top hat with one finger, and the other woman giggles behind her fan. This exchange marks one of the first lesbian kisses ever portrayed on film. The movie is Joseph von Sternberg's Morocco, the year is 1930, and the temptress in Tales is Marlena Dietrich. There's much about Morocco that is exactly how Marlena wanted to be portrayed all the time, and the sexualized lore she built around herself continues after her death. A sultry singer, comfortable in both men's and women's clothing, consumable by both men and women, confident in her ability to turn every head in every room. But beyond the multitude of lovers and progressive fashion choices was a woman whose ambition and self-importance was unmatched. Maria Magdalena Dietrich was born in Berlin on December 27, 1901. From an early age, her devotion to performance was actualized through music, and she had her sights set on becoming a professional violinist. This dream would be dashed away with a wrist injury in her childhood. Forever determined to have her name in lights, Marlena became a dancer and would perform at the underground drag shows in Berlin's emerging queer nightlife. This was a time of liberation and art, thought expansion, and acceptance. It wasn't long before filmmaker Joseph von Sternberg took notice of her. He'd already completed such projects as The Exquisite Sinner, The Underworld, and The Case of Lena Smith, and was now looking for an opportunity to break into the American market. He needed an actress who could do it all. Sing, dance, speak both German and English, and of course, seduce the camera. He cast her as Lola Lola in Der Blaue Engel, one of Germany's first talking films. The same cast performed an English-language version, and with both film successes, Der Blaue Engel and The Blue Angel, 
propelled Marlena to international stardom almost overnight. Von Sternberg and Marlena made for Hollywood not long after, where rumors and accusations of an affair between the two followed them from Berlin. Upon arrival, Marlena was met with two lawsuits brought by Von Sternberg's wife, one for libel, for widely discussing the breakdown of the Von Sternberg marriage, and the second for being the cause of Von Sternberg's alienation of affection. Within a couple of years, the marriage would indeed dissolve, and the lawsuits would be dropped. As the director and actress worked on further projects, such as Dishonored in 1931, The Shanghai Express in 1932, and their final movie together, The Devil is a Woman in 1935, Marlena juggled many more lovers with a deft hand. She began working with other directors and engaging in other romantic relationships, or so she and many people insinuated. 1939's Destry Rides Again saw her opposite Jimmy Stewart, with their affair lasting the duration of production. In 1940, she worked with John Wayne on the first of three films together, Seven Sinners. During the time she was seeing him, she was also sleeping with French actor Jean Gabon, German author Eric Maria Remarque, and American actress Kay Francis. Other lovers, rumored and verified, include Greta Garbo, Edith Piaf, Frank Sinatra, poet Mercedes D'Acosta, Errol Flynn and his wife, and perhaps most famously, a little president known as John F. Kennedy. With a wink, she affectionately referred to her collection of male lovers as the Alumni Association, whereas the women who belonged to that same club were known as her sewing circle. All of this time, she'd been married to Rudolf Sieber, a man who only ever supported her actions. They had one child, a daughter named Maria, born seven months after their 1923 marriage. The pair were often separated by a continent, but they professed great love and admiration for one another frequently through the press. While not a marriage of convenience in the sense that you and I might be familiar with today, or how we might use a phrase, it certainly benefited them both. He had a glamorous wife, and she could fulfill the expectation of appearing to be a loving wife and doting mother. And we'll get back to her relationship with her daughter in a little bit. Her numerous high-profile affairs gained such notoriety that the FBI began monitoring her to determine if she was a Nazi sympathizer. Quite the contrary. Marlena had turned down roles in Nazi propaganda films in the 1930s and spoken harshly of Hitler and the Nazi party. She renounced her German citizenship and officially became a U.S. citizen in 1939. As a result, hatred for her grew in Germany, and her films were subsequently banned as the government and its people labeled her a traitor. During World War II, she traveled perilously close to the war front to entertain Allied troops. For this, she was awarded the American Medal of Freedom in 1947. Her patriotism didn't stop there. She drove war bond campaigns, recorded anti-Nazi broadcasts in German, and co-created a fund with director Billy Wilder to help Jews and dissidents escape the regime. A short-sighted lie, if I can editorialize a little bit, uh, had the ability to come back to haunt her. Once, when asked if she still had any family in Germany, she replied that her sister, Elizabeth, was, quote, in Bergen. Aware that a sympathetic audience would interpret that to mean the concentration camp Bergen-Belsen. In reality, 
the sister and her husband were living in the town of Bergen, completely safe from the atrocities, and Marlena knew this. Years later, though, Marlena came to find out that Elizabeth and her husband were Nazi collaborators. In true Marlena style, she rewrote her history and controlled her narrative. From then on, she denied ever having had a sister at all. After the war, she continued her film career for a time, starring in such titles as Alfred Hitchcock's Stage Fright and Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. For the next 15 or so years, she returned to the stage for a one-woman show consisting of songs from some of her movies as well as popular tunes of the time. She performed in a whirlwind from Vegas to Paris and eventually did return to Germany in 1960 for the first time since before the war. Her arrival in West Germany was met with derision, vitriol, and bomb threats. Nazi supporters spit at her and carried signs telling her to go home, even 15 years after their defeat. And now while the reception in East Germany was much friendlier and all of her performances brought in large crowds, regardless of this warm reunion in the East, she swore she'd never step foot in Germany again. Because her vocal range was limited as a contralto, which is the lowest range for women, she required the help of musical arranger Bert Bacharach to expand her repertoire and boost her nightclub act. Oftentimes, she'd begin a show in a form-fitting sheer dress and later switch to top hat and tails, just like in Morocco. With this visual swap, she would perform songs usually sung by men, such as the hit I've Grown Accustomed to Her Face. I've grown accustomed to her looks Accustomed to her voice Accustomed to her face Her magnetism and devoted fan base filled the seats just about everywhere she went. Journalist Frances Windham wrote in 1964, What she does is neither difficult nor diverting, but the fact that she does it at all fills the onlookers with wonder. It takes two to make a conjuring trick, the illusionist's sleight of hand and the stooge's desire to be deceived. To these necessary elements her own technical competence, and her audience's sentimentality, Marlena Dietrich adds a third, the mysterious force of her belief in her own magic. Those who find themselves unable to share this belief tend to blame themselves rather than her. Wyndham's words strike me as the essence of Marlena, her very distillation, a woman with tremendous conviction in her own abilities, confidence enough for both of us, really, and the ability to bend the truth and rules alike to her will. In an appearance on Jack Parr's Tonight Show, Judy Garland had this to say about Marlena upon return from one of her tours. Hey, Marlena, and she'd been doing a tour of, uh, oh my goodness, uh, uh, many, many countries. And she came in with a great big record great big record, bigger than a 12-inch. It was about a... (laughs) And uh, she said, oh, darling, hello. How... Would would anybody like to hear my record? (laughs) So we all said, sure, we'd like to hear your record. (laughs) What are we going to say? No, we don't want to hear your record. (laughs) 
Of course we'd like to hear your record. There were just four of us there. Marlene was five. So she put the, the record on, and it was just applause. She jumped around and showed you the applause. Well, oh, she's showing, you know, sometimes the applause would vary. That, and then she'd say, that's Frankfurt. Like, and then, uh, then there'd be great, oh! And then she that's Berlin. And, you know, but not one note of music. She didn't sing. There was no orchestra, just applause. And Noel turned to me in the middle and said, I hope there isn't another side to this. And there was. For a few more years, she performed on stage all around the world before retiring altogether in the early 70s. A messy drug and alcohol dependency, along with poor circulation in her legs, resigned her to an apartment in Paris. The last time she appeared on film was 1978's Just a Gigolo, starring David Bowie. It seems like a sure winner to have two queer powerhouses share the silver screen, along with Hollywood royalty Kim Novak, But unfortunately, this project, there's really no beating around the bush here. It was just bad. Later, Bowie would say that everybody that was involved in that film, when they meet each other now, they look away. Even more sad for Bowie, he'd initially signed on because he wanted to work with Marlena. She shot all of her scenes in Paris. He shot all of his in Berlin. And the two never even met. Marlena spent those last years in her Paris apartment never venturing out, and reportedly spending her time reading and on the phone with old friends. In 1984, she provided audio commentary for a documentary that was about her, but she refused to appear on camera. She died in May of 1992, and despite swearing never to go back to Germany, she was buried next to her mother in Berlin. death of your subject often feels like the right place to end a story. In the case of Marlena, though, there's a lot of story left to uncover if I'm fulfilling my promise of circling back to her daughter, Maria. The year after Marlena's death, Maria published her biography, Marlena Dietrich, The Life, a 789-page memoir that levies many accusations against her now-dead, now-defenseless mother. I checked my copy of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and if you exclude the appendices, the book came in at just over a thousand pages, which is just around 240 pages more than the life. But anyway, in the biography, Maria claims she was referred to simply as the child and was required to claim to be younger than she actually was so as not to age Marlena. Her mother showered her with affection when others were present and largely ignored her otherwise. Even from a young age, Maria was well aware of Marlena's affairs, writing about how von Sternberg would sneak out of the house in the morning, come around to the front door, and then ring the doorbell to be let in for breakfast as though he'd only just arrived. She claims Marlena once laughed over former lover Yul Brynner's cancer diagnosis, made fun of Greta Garbo's kidney disease, 
and refused to attend von Sternberg's funeral after a late-in-life fight, a petty little argument that the two of them had. When Maria shared the news of her first pregnancy, Marlena replied, A child brings you nothing but trouble. And despite all that Marlena had done for Jewish refugees and all that she'd said against Hitler during the war, allegedly she held some pretty anti-Semitic views. In the book, there was a time Marlena was annoyed that stores were closed for Yom Kippur and remarked, I gave up my country for them, and now what do I get? Maria also reports that Marlena was openly racist, once banishing black nurses from her care during a hospital stay. While all of that's really bad, no denying it, Maria is most critical of her mother's final years, depicting a petty, bitter, perpetually drunk shut-in who chose to just stay in bed rather than risk falling down while inebriated. As Maria tells it, simply not being drunk never crossed Marlena's mind. Marlena also repeatedly wrote in her diary that Maria hadn't visited, when in fact, Maria would refute her mother's entries by writing Maria here on the same page. When she'd return, Maria here would be X'd out. Many have tried to determine the real truth between the things Maria and Marlena each said throughout their lifetimes. The hurdles here are obvious. Marlena is dead, and even in her life, her relationship with the truth was tenuous at best, frequently allowing others to carry a story for her or rewriting her own history as she saw fit. As far as Maria goes, some of the more salacious accusations are easy to chalk up to a child's perception of what's going on around them or even magnified resentment for a childhood that was less than ideal. Even to this day, it seems Marlena gets exactly what she wants to elicit such intrigue as to spark endless conversation about herself. Thank you for joining me in this very first episode of The Sewing Circle on Marlena Dietrich. All of my sources can be found on my website at sewingcirclepodcast.com. You can follow me at TSC underscore pod on Twitter and TSC underscore pod on Instagram. Um, In the show notes, I've included a link to a really awesome NPR article if you're interested in learning more about Berlin's historic queer nightlife and culture. So you should definitely read that. And I hope you'll join me next week. Please rate, review, and subscribe. You can find The Sewing Circle on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you listen to your favorite shows. Until next week. (laughs) 